This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and Salut Babette! Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, upon whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR, and to the Gadigal people, where we will be heard at Radio Skid Row. Tonight's report is about building back better after COVID-19. Literally, it's about building. This is about taking the emissions out of buildings. At the moment, buildings guzzle electricity. The electricity comes from coal-fired power. And our government wants to lead the recovery with gas. Meanwhile, the most horrific events predicted in Climate Code Red are happening right now in the Arctic Circle. In Siberia, sustained temperatures of 38 degrees, wildfires and an oil spill caused by the permafrost melting under the infrastructure make our blood run cold. You will hear tonight about the thousands of building retrofits which will happen if housing for people in a low in, on a low income is the first cab off the rank. And then we'll learn how we can accelerate deep energy retrofits in suburbia. And thirdly, to do the same thing with commercial buildings. You know, that means insulation, double glazing, solar panels with batteries. We've talked about it so many times, but to do it on a massive scale. France is doing 500,000 retrofits per year. But how will we pay for this? I hear you gasp. Well, the first speaker is Michael Lord, who is head of research at Beyond Zero Emissions. He reminds us that the average cost per household would be $30,000. One answer to pay for it is called Managed Energy Services Agreements. No upfront costs, and the performance of your equipment is guaranteed. I'm starting to sound like a salesperson here, but really it's so impressive, and so it's not the only idea Michael has for us, but that one, it sounds easy, like having a mobile phone account. The Dutch people call it energy sprong, meaning energy jump. And they are retrofitting thousands of houses to net zero. It's subsidised by the government there, but at scale, it's a scheme, they say, that is self-financing. Now, Michael sounds very measured and English, but the ambition of BZE's research is compelling. There is strategic thinking there behind the One Million Jobs Plan. It only wants to accelerate the best trends that are starting to be visible around the world. The leading principle behind a strong stimulus program is that it should create jobs and it shouldn't be wasteful. And to make sure it's not wasteful, it, it should bring forward spending that would have happened anyway and encourage private sector investment. And so that means identifying the trend, the big picture trends of the economy and accelerating them. So the way that we think about that trend is, you know, you think about the mega trend from analog to digital. And when we're t talking today about buildings, it's, it's just as relevant. We're talking about moving away from that old fire-based technology that's inefficient 
hard to control, not compatible with software and digitization, towards the new efficient electrical technology that is digitizable, it's modular, cost-effective, and allows us to be self-reliant in Australia. After Michael, we hear a panel conducted by Heidi Lee. They'll discuss um, net zero buildings from the point of view of architecture, from social responsibility, from the union's perspective, financing and sustainable housing. They talk about condensation, financing, manufacturing, training, and even they talk about pink bats. So Siberia is sending us a message tonight. There is no recovery from some tipping points. But COVID recovery, net zero buildings, is a very good place to start. We asked Michael uh, what percentage of emissions actually come from the building sector in Australia. Buildings account in their operation and construction about 25% of Australia's greenhouse gas emissions. So buildings use about two thirds of the electricity generated in Australia. Buildings is also a sector that ordinarily is a huge employer. So about a million people employed in the construction sector. But fortunately, by creating efficient buildings and building new efficient buildings, as we're going to see, we could minimize that number of uh, potential job losses. If we think about the criteria that a stimulus package should have, this area of decarbonizing buildings ticks a lot of those boxes. So it creates a lot of jobs. It creates a lot of jobs in a, in a sector uh, that is uh, potentially going to lose them. We can, we can get the projects off the ground quickly. We don't need years of the planning stage. We can target disadvantaged people, as we're going to see, by building social homes. And we create a whole load of long-lasting co-benefits, not just reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, we hope that eventually the Million Jobs Plan, um, when we release it, will also include non-residential retrofits. There are a lot more jobs in that sector as well. Uh, Certainly, we're going to include adding um, solar and batteries to public buildings like schools, which has all sorts of benefits. We probably won't look at uh, new building standards uh, or embodied emissions, but they're both really important. So we have to create zero emissions buildings. But how do we get to net zero emissions buildings, Michael? So a net zero energy building is one that produces as much renewable energy as it consumes over the course of a year. Uh, there's a preference for that renewable generation to be on-site, uh, but it could, be, it could also be off-site. Uh, and these buildings are energy efficient, they're all electric, and they're gas-free. So there's no combustion of anything on-site to produce their energy. It's a concept that's becoming more and more common Worldwide, So in California, since 2017, all, all new state buildings uh, have been net zero energy buildings. And in the European Union from the end of this year, uh, all new buildings of any type uh, will have to be what they call nero zero energy, nearly zero energy built. So how do you achieve a net zero energy building? Um, it's, it's actually not that hard technically. So you'd implement measures uh, like making it more thermally efficient, efficient lighting, replacing the gas heating and gas hot water with electrical alternatives. And through this sequence of measures, you'd reduce the energy use of that home 
by less than a quarter of its initial use. Minimizing energy use is the first step. Once you minimize the energy use, then it's a much easier target for solar power, so rooftop solar, to achieve that energy. Uh, one of the things that has changed since the Buildings Plan 2013 is how cheap uh, the installation of solar is compared to just seven years ago. The smart home energy management systems have become cheaper and a lot more capable and batteries are now uh, a viability as well. So our first idea for reducing emissions and creating jobs and creating a whole load of other uh, benefits, lots of new social housing. Uh, so we're saying that we can build 30,000 new social housing units every year for five years. That would be 150,000. And that would create uh, 87,000 jobs in each of those years. We base those figures uh, on the social housing initiative to the global financial crisis, which built, I think, 20,000 homes. We, we have upscaled that. 30,000 homes a year is at the high end, even of what housing and homeless charities are calling for, although it is similar to what housing groups in Victoria, in, have called for in Victoria. We've chosen this figure because, really because of the need so the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute has pointed out that there's a shortfall already of more than 400,000 social houses, and that's growing. By 2036, it will be more than 700,000. Australia used to build thousands of social houses every year and essentially stopped about 25 years ago. So we've got a big backlog, uh, and that's one of the main causes of homelessness. There are more than 100,000 homeless people now in Australia, in Victoria alone, there are 80,000 people on the social housing waiting list. They're going to be waiting years uh, to get a house if, if they ever get one at all. So there's a desperate need for social housing. We could build this many houses a year and, and we could make them uh, energy efficient for about eight to nine billion dollars a year. That's a lot of money, but then quite small when you compare it to the amount of money we've had to spend on stimulus already and the amount of money we find for other things like nuclear submarines. Uh, so it's, it, we can certainly find this money. And as I say, Australia used to build thousands of social houses uh, a year. The UK actually built 100,000 social houses a year for many decades uh, between the, the end of the Second World War and the 1980s. And we've seen some government uh, movements in this area. So the Victorian government has pledged 500 million for social housing, mostly mostly for upgrades, actually, in the Tasmanian government as well. So these 150,000 social houses would be energy efficient. We're saying they should achieve a 7.5 star energy efficiency. So that compares to the legal minimum today of a six star home. 7.5 compared to six, for example, in Melbourne would be 40% reduction in the energy used for heating and cooling. If we built all these uh, energy efficient homes, we would actually develop the capability and the skills of the construction sector to, to build more energy efficient homes. So when eventually the National Construction Code increases its minimum level, the industry would be ready because they would have built these social homes. And similarly with the supply chain, that would be supplying the insulation and other equipment needed. We'd also include solar on as many of these homes as possible and on some of them batteries as well. So the second idea we have to retrofit two and a half million homes, and these are deep energy retrofits at the end of which 
achieve zero net emission homes. So that's homes that generate as much renewable energy as they use over the course of the year. Carry out a thermal retrofit, so, so to make the uh, heating and cooling demands low. Uh, we'd replace the gas space heating and gas uh, hot water with electrical, uh, much more efficient electrical uh, equivalents. We'd add solar, we'd add some batteries, uh, and it would create a whole industry in professional services uh, organizing and maintaining these energy retrofits. So this would create by the fifth year 100,000 jobs. So it would be a really huge job creator. The full cost of doing this to an individual house, to a house that had nothing, would be about, uh, we estimate, at $44,000 but most houses wouldn't need the full package because it, most houses have some level of insulation. Many uh, indeed have uh, solar panels. So the average cost to a house would be less than less than thirty thousand. Five hundred thousand uh, home e- energy retrofits a year is something that is being targeted in some European countries, uh, for example, France. The United States did energy upgrades to a million homes after the global financial crisis. France and the US are obviously bigger than Australia, but Australia can be, we can decide to be more ambitious than those countries as well. So the real question is uh, that I don't think any country has tackled is how to do retrofits on this scale, uh, especially when we're talking about people's uh, private homes we're unlikely to uh, force people to do them. So how, how are we going to get it done? One place we could start is with social houses. There are about half a million social houses in Australia. So that's a year's worth of our plan and would give the, the industry the chance to uh, upskill and gain expertise in doing these retrofits. Uh, then there are rental properties. We could we could introduce incentives or even conditions on rental properties to carry out deep energy retrofits. There are more than 2.5 million rental properties in in Australia. But one thing I do want to get across is that we we do have the money to do this. It's not a question of money because, as I've shown on my next slide. Australians already uh, in the next 10 years are set to spend round about $250 billion on their energy bills, on their gas and electricity bills. That would be enough to carry out the deep energy retrofits we're talking about to every house in Australia. So I think we should think about an equivalence between this money and the money we could be spending on retrofits. And so... We need to think about business models that are going to channel this money, not into the energy industry, but into the home uh, retrofit industry. And I'd like to present one uh, way of doing this. It's not the it's not the only way, but I think it is an interesting model that uh, that there is some experience with in Europe. And that is the managed energy services agreement. What is a managed energy services agreement? It takes a, it takes a little while if you've never heard of this kind of uh, managed energy services agreement to get your head around what is going on. It actually changes the model where a ha- from where a householder pays an energy bill each month according to their energy they use. It changes it into uh, paying for an energy service, paying a set fee for 
energy provision. It, a, a, a good analogy is with a mobile phone. So many people have a mobile phone contract. They pay a set fee for that. And if you like, they get the handset and the calls and the texts and the internet use is free in inverted commas. But they know what they're going to get. There's a guaranteed performance. They know what they're going to pay each month. Uh, and, and it's the same with a uh, managed energy services agreement. So the, the managed, the energy services company would organize and finance the entire retrofit to make your house a net zero energy house. There'd be no upfront cost to you as a property owner. The energy services company would also guarantee a minimum level of energy performance. So, for example, an interior temperature in summer and winter, a comfortable interior temperature would be guaranteed. And the performance of the the insulation, the solar panels, the batteries, if there there was one, uh, they would all be guaranteed by this energy service provider. And they would deal with the energy retailer, not you as, as the householder. So... From a householder's point of view, two big barriers to deep energy retrofits are being are being overcome by this model. One is the upfront costs. You no longer have you wouldn't have any upfront costs because that's the responsibility of the energy services company. You're simply switching from energy bills to a to a monthly fee, and that monthly fee would be less than you historically paid in bills. The second barrier that would be overcome is the uncertainty of performance. I think one thing that stops people getting deep energy retrofits is they're not quite sure how much it's going to save them and no one will guarantee what it is. But with this, the energy services company guarantees the performance. And if it doesn't work out as expected, then they're required to come back and fix things. A householder still has to put up with a few days of disruption while the retrofit takes place. But in return for that, they get lower energy costs. They get certainty of energy costs into the future because it's a flat fee. Uh, it could increase the value of the property, um, result in a more comfortable home and possibly a better looking home. The, the energy services company would do this uh, basically because they would get a return on their investment. So their investment in retrofitting, um, they would get a, a, a small return uh, thanks to the, the monthly fee that you'd be paying them. And this would be made a lot easier if they were able to access uh, low interest government loans. Uh, we know that um, the federal government can now borrow money for, for an interest rate of less than 1%. That money through the Clean Energy Finance Corporation or a new body should be made available to these managed energy service companies. And as I say, we can get started with them. This, this would be a fairly new model in the residential sector of Australia, but we can get started in the social housing area. Where- This is actually a model that already exists in the commercial and residential sector around the world. I'm going to mention one company, uh, a Dutch company, that that has had a successful application of managed energy service contracts. So Energiesprong, which uh, means something like Energy Jump in Dutch, they have now retrofitted thousands of homes uh, in the Netherlands and around Europe to the net zero energy standard. Uh, so homes that produce as much energy uh, as they use. This picture is of a row of homes, social houses in Nottingham. So see if you can spot the house that didn't go for the energy sprung model. Uh, but all the ones with the white walls, 
did. A particular case study has been monitored to death. It's working really successfully. It's um, made the homes much more comfortable, more presentable, and it's reduced the energy bills for the occupants. Energy Sprong so far has been government subsidized. They say that if they're able to go from a few thousand homes, which they've done so far, to tens of thousands of homes, it will be self-financing. And what we think is that if you can do this in Europe, where they regularly face uh, sub-zero temperatures and most retrofits will need external wall insulation, then we should be able to do it in Australia, where by and large we don't need to make the houses nearly as thermally efficient to be able to produce the energy with solar panels. Solar panels obviously work a hell of a lot better in Australia than they do uh, in Nottingham. You can see the day this is taken, um, the sun isn't especially shining. We're not saying this has to be the way we, we do it in Australia. But what we would like you to take from this presentation is uh, the level of ambition. So 150,000 social houses, new energy efficient social houses in five years and 2.5 million energy retrofits. We have this level of ambition because that's what's needed. We need urgently to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It's also technically more than possible. It's financially achievable uh, and it will create a whole load of co-benefits uh, co like lower energy costs and more comfortable housing and reduced homelessness. And it would have the short-term effect of creating uh, nearly 200,000 jobs in the construction sector. So I'll be really interested to see what the, the panelists and other uh, attendees have to say about this. We should be talking, be acting to promises heard. If we just wait, be patient for the trickle down to work. Well, I don't see it, I'm skeptical of these empty words. They cannot save us, that's for sure. We wait for heaven to answer our call. We think the market itself can do it all. Logic of profit in this climate will be our downfall. Not paying for the damage that we cause. This changes everything, don't you see? This changes the world. I'm Heidi, I'm the project lead for the Million Jobs Plan at Beyond Zero Emissions, and I'm joining you today from Wurundjeri land um, in Melbourne. I'm paying respects to elders past, present, and those emerging. So I mentioned five industry leaders joining us today. Uh, we have sectors represented, are design, development, social services, the workers, and finance. And I know that we're also joined by many other industry leaders on the call. I can see a participants list there and it's great to have you all here today. Without delay, our first panelist is Caroline Hidcock. Caroline has a long career as an award-winning architect and sustainability leader in the buildings industry. 
She's a past president of the Australian Institute of Architects, a past president of the Australian Sustainable Built Environment Council. She's currently the chair of One Million Women and the spokesperson for Architects Declare. In 2009, Caroline was awarded a scholarship to study the architecture of net zero housing. And I promised to drag that one up to make sure she gets some questions about it. So Caroline, my question for you, you have been designing sustainable homes for over three decades, but we're talking today about a really, really large scale application of, of building retrofits and of, of high performing, low cost new homes. How can we make sure that good quality outcomes are delivered as part of these really large scale initiatives? Hi Heidi, and I say hello from the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation up here in Sydney and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I mean, it's just astounding when you think about it that, that standard practice is to build shitty homes. I mean, how did that ever happen? And I suppose um, we've really got to embrace this as a really great idea and apply, particularly, I think, from a design point of view, how do you take on that and really make beautiful homes from it? And it is entirely possible and it's entirely, I mean, it, there's examples all over the world. And I suppose you say, well, why isn't it happening more? And it's probably because change people get into a habit of building and designing in certain ways and find it really hard to change but it actually isn't that hard to change and it isn't that difficult um, I think we just need to concentrate on better quality and you know a less is more kind of approach where you what you build is you build quality and you build it beautifully and you build it with so that people find delight in in living in these places as well as incredible comfort and health. Oh, and guess what? Hardly any bills. So um, very, very possible and doable. The first question uh, was specifically back to that retrofit quality. So how can we make sure that um, they want to hear specific things that you do to make a house more thermally efficient? How is that different in different climate zones? And how can we make sure we do it well and don't just create condensation problems in buildings from sealing them up when, when they're not made to do that from the start. Caroline, over to you. I think it's really critical that we, um, that all, everyone, architects, designers, engineers and um, builders are upskilled in how to prevent condensation issues because as you seal a building up more, those issues become much more apparent and so you've got to put in place um, techniques to, to make sure that condensation doesn't develop. Um, someone, I did see one of the questions saying without, without going to passive house. Well, passive house is actually a very good um, system and they're very low energy, low cost ventilation systems are what stops that uh, ventilation, that those condensation issues from happening. But there are very simple things. I lived for eight years in a heritage listed terrace and couldn't do much to that. But the biggest impact was sealing up gaps between floorboards and and skirtings and around windows and making the windows much more efficient with secondary glazing that sort of could be applied to heritage listed windows. And it went from being very uncomfortable in winter to really, you know, not I'm not saying it was totally comfortable without a bit of heating, but I could get up in the morning and walk around with without sort of putting on, you know, a doona to move. Um, so I think that there are some very simple things, but, and, and insulation is a, is a big one. And 
subfloor insulation and ceiling insulation is the most important. And, you know, pink back scheme, you know, I think there was a lot more, I think the bad news around that was a lot more political than it was bad. Um, and But I do think that there were also a lot of unskilled people installing. So back to training up people and doing simple things. But I just think that there are many really quite simple things at the very first level and then sort of supplemented with, I think, that beautiful diagram that Michael showed of um, much more efficient appliances for heating and cooling that can supplement a building envelope that is less inefficient. Thank you. And Godfrey, you have something to add to that? Yeah, I think um, workers' rights at the point of installation are incredibly important for that to the extent that we've had a bad experience as a country with pink bats that wasn't a political beat up. It was because of poor quality occupational health and safety. Um, and so having workers who are experienced, um, who can exercise voice in that is an incredibly important way to respect the craft and the quality of of the build and whether that's through um, that firms that are unionised, cooperative firms, there's many different models, but the core of it is workers who have that experience, who have those skills and ha can have voice um, about issues that they identify there. Thanks, Godfrey. And it is worth um, the audience here knowing that um, we are working on a, a chapter in our overall million jobs plan that's going to outline some of the additional jobs that are required to make sure that we can support workers um, to deliver this this new, more more high quality um, product than what they're able to at the moment. And there's additional jobs in that. So it's a flow on benefit from committing to these large scale stimulus. G'day you mob, Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong, stay safe and of course, keep listening to 3CR community radio to keep connected to the community we'll get through this and hope to see you real soon bye i'm gonna introduce rob pradlin next so rob you must be pleased with the increased interest in in building more more public social and affordable housing this is what you're about and i know you have a view that this is a problem too big for the government to solve alone so what do you think needs to happen to seriously engage with the private sector at scale, the scale that we're talking about, to make them part of the solution? Well, firstly, thank you, Heidi, for the opportunity to share my views and to listen to what I'm saying are thought leaders in the climate change agenda. And we like to think that we're pushing the housing agenda very focusedly so we can actually get something done. So in answer to your question, look, yes, I'm very pleased that the discussion has centred into building more social, affordable and public housing at scale. But being a bit cynical and understanding how politics works and when the unions and master builders get together, it's all about self-interest to build more housing to get more jobs. And that's, that's fine. The real challenge comes after it, becomes, it stops becoming a COVID um, economic initiative and to continue the pipeline because, you know, through my experience and, and um, learnings, like, like you guys, I've come to the very, very clear view 
that the long-term cost to our society of not providing more social, public and affordable houses is that we're leaving an intergenerational time bomb because whilst government terms are three years, some of these initiatives building the $400,000 that your paper refers to is going to take decades. And we have to create, like you have done, the public outcry to say this is something as a society that we do not want to be part of. And the real interesting point, and not many people actually know this, but our super funds have several billion dollars invested in housing Americans and hardly anything in this country because the financial instruments at the federal level do not create the mechanisms that allow them to get a reasonable financial return. And it's not the super funds fault by any means. It's what we set up federally. So the task for us at the end of this, and this is what we're focusing on is creating the economic argument, not the social argument, because that's been sort of done quite well, but the economic argument that it's in our long-term interest to save money in terms of less mental health, physical health, family violence, justice, policing, et cetera, et cetera. It just makes sense to provide what is a basic human need. And I don't want to go down the human rights argument because that disenfranchises 50% of the population but no one can deny it's not a fundamental human need. And without that being met, unintended consequences. So look, I'm very pleased. I do agree that it needs to be, they need to be um, insulated to reduce the, the um, operating costs of the homes. But again, it's got so many tentacles and self-interest that you've got to be aware of that to actually get an outcome that we're all happy with. So, um, but I do admire you and I do agree that we need to challenge the status quo in a whole range of levels. You guys are focusing on energy. We're focusing on housing. Kelly Court is our next panellist. Uh, Kelly is a senior advisor, climate and energy at ACOS. And ACOS, for those who don't know, is the Australian Council of Social Service. So at ACOS, Kelly leads the development of strategic policy, advocacy, research directions around climate and energy. So we are extremely lucky to have you join us today. Thank you, Kelly, for making time. I know you've got an especially busy schedule right now. So Kelly, in our paper, we outlined a five-year plan that focuses on improving housing outcomes for low-income people and increasing social housing supply across the country. But what is social housing and, and why should we focus on low-income households? Um, and in, in terms of government spending in an economic downturn. So could you share some of your thoughts around those issues? Thanks, Heidi. Um, and I'd also like to acknowledge uh, the traditional owners of the land in which I'm currently sitting on, which is the Jagger and the Turbal people. Um, so I'm in southeast Queensland um, and pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for the question. So, yes, ACOS' um, mission, I guess, is to eliminate poverty and inequality, and part of that is the that contributes to poverty um, in particular is housing, whether it's the cost of housing um, or the cost of running housing, and I think. Often we focus a lot on the cost of housing, which is important, um, but we forget about the cost of running the house. And, and what we find is a lot of people, especially when you're renting, um, end up in a house that they can afford to rent, um, but then realise that the, the costs of actually uh, being able to run that home to make it 
comfortable and healthy for them to live in can become prohibitive. So, you know, a good example is take the ACT where something like 40% of rental properties are zero energy rated. So can you imagine living in, in Canberra in below zero temperatures and not being able to heat your home? Um, you know, people become very sick. Um, and if they do um, invest in hitting their home, it means they go without other essential services. So, uh, for example, food, medicine. Scott Boxe is joining us. Um, he's the CEO and Managing Director of the Sustainable Australia Fund. Um, Scott has pioneered environmental upgrade finance agreements in Australia and is working with governments across the country uh, to create and improve this new form of finance. So I think uh, present some direct answers to some of the challenges that we've laid out around how to make these things happen. The Sustainable Australia Fund is working in partnership with Bank Australia to invest in projects that yield positive economic and environmental outcomes, which is what we're about today. So Scott, Upgrade Finance has been available in the business sector for some time, but can you tell us how it works and how it can be used to support high quality housing outcomes for Australians? Right, thanks, Heidi, for the introduction. Yes, um, yeah, environmental upgrade agreements uh, have been around for uh, nearly a decade, but only available to uh, the non-residential sector. Uh, we started in Victoria, and effectively, this is a loan which is repaid through council rates. Uh, and because of its structure, it enables us to mobilise a lot of capital towards the sector uh, to deliver projects that have to to yield a, a public benefit outcome. And, and in this circumstance, you know, it's a better performing building. Um, we've been working with governments, uh, environmental upgrade agreements are available currently in New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. And we're talking to governments across the country to expand that availability. But perhaps most uh, recently, uh, we're based in Melbourne here and we've been working with Victorian government uh, during the height of the, the COVID lockdown uh, little known was that the Victorian government passed, uh, the law came to power that um, environmental upgrade agreements can actually now be used for residential properties. So uh, that happened on the 6th of April and uh, we're very happy to see that this has now moved in this direction. You know, we, we think the opportunity for residential property is, um, is significant. You know, there's about 500,000 private ho houses bought and sold each year. Yeah, other than the ACT, which has uh, mandatory disclosure about performance of the properties, we think there's a couple of things that governments can do uh, to quickly mobilise demand for these kind of outcomes here. You know, we know and we saw a lot of the good opportunities that Michael uh, presented there. You know, the, the challenge is demand and access to capital uh, for the kind of outcomes we're seeking here. Uh, to remobilise a workforce towards uh, this outcome. So we work with governments and we, we basically say, you know, government's balance sheets are increasingly getting more and more uh, crowded, particularly with all this COVID stimulus. You know, how can you actually stimulate this outcome with a swipe of the legislative pen? Uh, the other one is, uh, you know, uh, then working with governments as we ha have to make environmental upgrade agreements available not only to residential properties, but also to vacant land or to and, and able to fund new buildings. Uh, in the new buildings, we've looked at uh, opportunities to deliver zero net carbon homes for the same sticker price as a six star uh, home uh, and the marginal 
cost difference, which is anywhere between twenty-five dollars and $45,000, is funded by an environmental upgrade agreement. The outcome here is that if you, if you have long-term fixed interest finance like an environmental upgrade agreement that can transfer between owners as a property is bought and sold, the cash flow benefits go directly to the owner of that building at that time. So each homeowner, we estimate, would have about $200 a year better off after repaying. Uh, across these two segments, we, we look, you know, um, that by 2050, you know, if we retrofitted um, you know, close to two and a half million uh, homes, you're looking at, you know, housing stock would be carbon neutral by 2050. Uh, housing affordabil affordability would be kept in check. Uh, and this is primarily because the the way, the detail, and I won't go into it at this stage of how EUAs work, it would enable builders' margins to increase by about 30% without a change to the price a, a, a purchaser pays for the home. So remember that, you know, the same sticker price as a six-star home. Yeah, so in, in a COVID climate, you know, new housing starts are forecast to really drop down. And so these kind of uh, stimulation... That the swipes of the pen could actually mobilise and create demand for a workforce so that is currently building new buildings into retrofit kind of work. Most importantly, these are not significant uh, renovations. They're not the $150,000 renovations that do require, you know, planning permits, uh, things like this. You know, these are retrofits, you know, replacing in insulation, double glazing, solar panels, hot water, thermal capacity, what we're talking about here. And this kind of uh, activity can be mobilised pretty quickly. We have the capital available to do it. We have the workforce available to do it. Uh, what we need is a, a couple of swipes of the legislative pen to enable it. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests, slow down the path of fire and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically these big large fires have been quite rare but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common so we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. What kind of return can we expect to see over, over what period? Why, why is this an attractive investment? I hope that, that captures a few, few questions I'm seeing here in the, in the Q&A. Uh, yeah, look, we, we've, we've looked specifically at this, as I said, for both uh, retrofit and new construction. And that marginal cost around that $30,000, you know, I think... Um, you need to, if you're going to be funding this with something like an environmental upgrade agreement, you need to fund, you know, factor in the repayments of those loans. Very similar to the, the, the MESA model, right? Is that effectively the MESA model is, uh, using private capital to unlock that upfront works and then there's the return on investment through those fixed repayments over the term of the contract. Um, is it the same kind of model? And I think, you know, this is a shotgun approach. We need lots of different approaches. It's not just the MESA model. It's not just, you know, the, the pink bats or whatever the kind of scheme is. You know, there's lots of innovation that needs to occur across business models. But fundamentally, with, with our modelling around a, a standard retrofit, 
building owner, a homeowner organizes the upgrade, however, whether it be through a MESA service provider or somebody else, um, that our, our modeling shows that with a 20 year, and the term of the loan is really quite important, a 20 year fixed interest uh, loan, each householder after debt service could be about $200 a year better off. And we're looking at uh, insulation upgrades, thermal efficiency. Uh, we're also looking at renewable energy uh, as well as uh, some water efficiency projects within that, that, that upgrade. Fantastic, Scott. It all feels a lot more, more doable hearing about the work that's underway uh, with the Sustainable Australian Fund. So let's um, not compromise on our ambition in terms of getting these things happening. From a cost perspective, now we're not talking about $25,000 investment um, as BZE is, and I can certainly understand why BZE is because it's, you know, you, you're talking about zero bills and and zero emission homes. So I guess what we're saying is part of economic stimulus. Um, we're we're only looking at a five thousand dollar cap investment, um, which can go towards things like um, big ticket items like new reverse cycle air conditioning, which can help with heating and cooling, hot water systems, um, insulation, those sorts of things that can make um, a short-term difference but you know our costing show that that in itself is going to cost billions of dollars to do over four years to do all the social housing dwellings as well as the 1.1 million homes of people living um, on low income and and rental properties so it is a big outlay for governments um, but you know what I guess our view is is that these people can't afford to do it on their own. And even through, you know, having some sort of um, a loan scheme would be challenging for some of those people to be able to provide off um, over many years. So, you know, I think there's a mixture of, of measures that you can use and we're certainly advocating that as a stimulus measure, governments should be investing in the short term. And there's so many co-benefits for doing that, as we've all talked about. So it's the it's the jobs that can be created. Um, it's the savings on bills that can be reinvested back into the economy for stimulus, um, as well as the health outcomes. Um, and not and we haven't mentioned uh, cutting emissions. And the other thing we haven't mentioned is um, improving the reliability um, of the grid as well. Rob, I think you have some perspectives and maybe some new ideas that perhaps our audience hasn't heard about how to get um, these projects happening at scale. Well, first it's response to Kelly. And I, look, I agree with everything she says, but we're also going to be looking at government saying that the limited, there's a limited um, pot of money and um, being, again, very cynical, it's all about political self-interest and we want things that are long-term strategically placed to place Australia in a better position. But it's, the stimulus is all about short-termism as opposed to long-term strategy. But what Scott said earlier, you've got to focus on the hip pocket. Um, market will drive things if it's actually in their interest. And we're going through a cultural change here. This is the consumer is always sceptical about all these um, offers to say you're, ne you're never going to be better. So you're going to be always better off and there's, there's no downside, but they're always sceptical. We have to create trust in some of these things and by potentially um, backing it and, and educating the public because that's the only way for long-term sustainability, which is why one of the principles that we adopt is we're not waiting for government. The private sector has to lead this. If you wait for government, you'll die. 
um, a crisis. You know, un uncharacteristically, they've made decisions during this crisis. But you've got to get to a crisis for government to make decisions. And I'm over waiting for government. It's people on this seminar and the private sector that will have to lead change because governments will always lag. Thank you so much, Rob. Godfrey knows, like, we're, we're, it's not complete talking about these types of ambitious goals and we've spoken about the need and who's going to benefit from living in better homes. We've spoken about how to help maintain the quality of these upgrades and, and design delivery. And we've talked about uh, um, leveraging private finance to help make it happen. But what happens when we start to get demand from our building sector for high quality building materials? What happens in the supply chain and, and upstream of those houses? There are um, your workers, there are factory workers and the manufacturing sector and the um, supply chain sector bringing all of this stuff together. So how can um, your workers benefit from this type of initiative? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question, Heidi, and thanks for having me. Um, I'm zooming in from the lands of the Kulin Nation uh, in Melbourne, and this plan, I think, is speaks to a lot of things that are very dear to my heart personally because I grew up um, in a situation of uh, long-term housing insecurity, um, and I work with United Workers Union. We have 150,000 members across 47 industries um, and housing security and the cost of living is a huge issue for our members wherever they work, whether that's in early childhood or aged care or many other facets of the economy. So we have a general interest in the quality of housing stock and housing security and public housing going up. Um, but in my particular role, I represent thousands of members in manufacturing and Australia has still a relatively good footprint of building products manufacturing. Many of these products in the supply chain, it's incredibly difficult and costly to transport them long distances just because of the nature of the products um, and the volume that are in them. Um, and having this sort of public housing-led, social housing-led stimulus measure along with the social innovation um, of a managed energy services um, agreement is an incredibly powerful tool that can have a lot of upstream jobs that come with it um, and help with building up Australia's manufacturing sector. Um, because my global analysis of, of where we are is that the technology, the policies that we need, there is always room for improvements, but we know basically what we need to do to manage this transition and manage it properly. The barriers are social and they're political. Um, and having really good quality local content and procurement provisions that go along with these sort of public investments, I think are critical to bringing along a social base for this plan. I say that because for a government, social spending um, is not the same as just the cost of the product, um, whether uh, one bit of insulation costs a dollar fifty or a dollar, really depends on what happens, what impact occurs in the community for that spend, much like the cost of public housing and the cost of not dealing with public housing. There are very strong overlaps there. But I think unions were an incredible engine for social change. Um, and there are even some unions following the legacy of Jack Mundy who are trying to work through this process. And they get a lot of bad attention, sometimes a lot of bad headlines, but the 
um, building and construction division of the CFMEU in Victoria, the AMW, ETU and us through Cooperative Power have also been working through this process of how do you have um, how do you have a transition and a massive upgrade in building stock that doesn't leave working people behind, that doesn't discriminate people who can't afford the upfront costs. Um, and that we've been doing that through Powering Victoria and this is a really incredible plan that BZE has led and put together as well. And we've got to really make sure that we um, can push for this. Let that be the lasting message that we leave with today, that the collaboration that is needed for us to implement the types of changes across our design industry, our construction sector, our manufacturing workers, our finance sector, and our developers, our, all of these things need to come together at a scale that we have not yet done. And the need and the benefits should be the reason that we can do that. I hope you've all enjoyed um, and learned something today. I know I have, and I'm incredibly grateful that we were able to be joined by Caroline Hidcock, Rob Pradolin, Godfrey Mose, Kelly Court and Scott Boxey. So another silent round of applause for you. We appreciate you very much. Um, now, a number of unanswered questions came through on the Q&A and they were primarily around a huge bunch of ideas for um, and curiosity about how BZE is going to take this plan forward to help make change um, in that national debate. So... If you'd like to stay a part of this, there are still opportunities to join us and contribute to the Million Jobs Plan. This is just one of six different areas of, that we are creating initiatives that start to set that national ambition for what is possible. Can we get a million Australians back to work building a clean energy economy? And if so, what would they be doing? Come and join us and, and help make this happen. I am not in love. But I'm open to persuasion When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with a love, I could hold my hand back really loud, really loud. Thanks for listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show tonight. Thank you to our guests, Eitan Lenko, Michael Lord and Heidi Lee from Beyond Zero Emissions. Their guests on the panel were Caroline Pidcock, Rob Pradolin, Kelly Court, Scott Boxey and Godfrey Mose. There was a great interest in this webinar, as I noted in the busy chat box of many attendees, and I think this retrofitting and building social housing with thermal comfort would be a major way to quickly get decent jobs for people thrown by the pandemic. Thank you to Andy, Michaela and Raoul, and also thank you to Imogen Butler for helping me get this show together. You can find the podcast at BZE Podcasts on 3CR. Next week, we'll start a new series from the front lines of climate disruption with a deep look at Bangladesh. And just before we go, here is Christiana Figueres speaking today at the launch of Beyond Zero Emissions' One Million Jobs Report. Over 900 people attended and she told us this might be Australia's last chance to wake up and understand 
where energy and especially exports need to go. I must say, I am really excited about this plan. It just fits so beautifully into answering a question that I have had for years, which is why is Australia not the leader of renewable energy and renewable powered industry in the world? Um, there honestly is no answer to that, or at least no serious answer to that. It is being increasingly understood that precisely now when there's a breakdown of the old economy, that is when space is made for the new economy. Yes, we are in the worst crisis that we've had since the Second World War. Precisely because of that, there is space. Think of it of when a very large tree falls down in the forest. What, that ha what happens then is that it makes an incredible amount of space. It brings in so much more light that wasn't there before for new growth. That is what is happening right now. Yes, we're still in the pain of the tree that is falling. But as it falls, it makes space and brings in light for so much new growth. We cannot afford to build back. If I continue to hear the build back message. Um, even if it's followed with better, we can't afford to build back. We have to build forward. That is the only way that we're actually going to get ourselves out of the mess that we're in. The European Union is looking at a recovery package that is going to put in $90 billion into home efficiencies, tw euros, 25 billion euros into renewable energy, 20 billion into clean transportation of vehicles, 60 billion into clean trains, and they're going to be uh, creating and producing 1 million tons of clean hydrogen. If there is a country that is positioned for clean hydrogen, it is Australia. And that is the market that is emerging out of the vision into the future. That's why Europe is going into that. That is why Europe, with this recovery plan, is creating a million jobs and is, of course, funding also a just transition fund because it's important to take all those workers who have been for years, if not decades, at the service of especially the coal industry, to say nothing of oil and gas, but take them with us on this journey into, um, into the future. So I'm very excited about this report. Every time something dramatic happens in Australia, I keep on thinking, right, this is when Australia is actually going to make the bend in the curve. And I hope that this is it. I hope that COVID has woken us up to understand that there will eventually be a vaccine for COVID, but there is no vaccine against climate change. Hence, we have to have recovery plans that plan for the future. I hope we understand that because we're now no longer in linear and, and gradual transformation, but everything is exponential, and you've seen that in the past two months, we don't have any time for timid approaches about the transformation of the energy sector. This is so much, frankly, from my point of view, and I'm very far away from you, so please feel free to discard the opinion, but I think this is the last chance for Australia. This is the last chance to wake up and understand where um, investments and where the economy and where energy in Australia, and especially where exports need to go. 
And so I would love to hear from the other panel members whether you all think that the Commission members are also taken with the urgency of this transformation right now, not within 10 years, now. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck.